This is prayer for the new year. For the new year, I won't count it down like a uranium bomb. The last days came as a plague ship over the horizon, I know, so I'm swimming out to meet it. Let the desert bloom through ruins we can look out of. Let us outlive the wolves. Fresh air is the only kiss I need, and I will carry you like honey and apples. Bless the body between love and fear. Bless who dares the skyline and who holds thieves accountable from lampposts as red dandelions blaze. And what's the future except an unfolded tablecloth? Midnight, led by the shifting light of wounds across white rose petals. I, I will, I will see. I will see the moon and morning and hope. Oh, my bio. So uh, I'm Rhiannon McGavin. I am a writer from Los Angeles. In 2016, I was the Youth Poet Laureate of Los Angeles. Now I am studying literature and psychology at UCLA. And I have a puppy who's half poodle, a quarter pug, and a quarter Pomeranian, and all over a noodle. And his name is Macaroni. He's very integral to my writing process whenever i am working on a big project he knows that we go for extra walks oh yeah like i need uh -huh. to go like talk to myself outside for 15 minutes so go get your leash yeah. oh oh when i um left uh i was out of the country for a few weeks and i made sure i had lots of gross sweaty shirts left over for macaroni to make a nest out of while i was gone for me, poetry is a mode of literature where I can be very conceptual and emotional, as well as tap into the tools of memory and sound uh, that have been honed in the tradition of poetry for thousands of years. So it's a way to connect to a very internal sense of rhythm. Poetry is not as beholden to narrative or facts, right, as a novel or a nonfiction essay or article might be. So you have more space to play around and get conceptual and a little more, the, the, it hinges on emotional logic more than anything else for me. I always wanted to be a writer. Uh, when I was little, one of my earliest memories is making a picture book out of ribbons and construction paper for my granddad. Uh, but like most teenagers, right, I used poetry as an emotional outlet when I was I was getting into that adolescent angst. Um, so that was the energizing impulse that that brought me to poetry. So my relationship with it has changed over the years. Um, because I I no longer want my, I, I, as I've become a professional writer, right, I don't want to publish my emotional outlet. 
So it's become important for me to separate writing as a tool of therapy from writing as something that I publish for other people to look at and hear, right? So I'll, I still keep a diary quite, quite intensely and I free write and write as much as I can. And that's a space where I'm not worried at all about how it sounds or looks or how I come off. This is the space for me to be a jealous heathen right whereas um and and using my journal in that way means that when i approach the page in a poetic sense i don't have uh as much baggage right i've already used writing as an emotional outlet for that day so i i can think about it in a different sense jeff 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 i need you to tell them my book story there's a place in Toronto called Kensington Market. Well, it's a, a first of all, a, a food market. Um, it's a very sort of busy, touristy place that has some character, unlike the mm -hmm. rest of the city. Anyway, quite near to OCAD, where I went to school. But back in the day, I guess I was probably 19, 20, 21, maybe. I was an angsty young man sitting in the cafe in Kensington Market. Uh, as I remember with my sketchbook and my uh, internal rhythms, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which I'll get back to. So I was sort of gazing out the window, uh, drinking my coffee in this cafe. And above the store, in the second story above one of the stores, there a window opened. And there was this little head poked out the window, looked both ways, went back in, poked her head out again, and threw this envelope out into the street. Mm -hmm. And it kind of like rained down or didn't rain down, floated like a leaf, you know, just mm -hmm. sort of into beside a puddle as I can imagine it. But I ran over it and picked it up right away and I still have it. This is this envelope. It says book or one book on the front of it. And it's all mm -hmm. taped up with duct tape. And, and there's this little story about uh, her dog and her cat and her family and how much she oh, loves them. Oh, that's so precious. Very oh precious. God. Oh. Um, but that act of publishing, that act of giving it to the world, the sharing of it, mm -hmm. is what really breaks my heart. When we professionalize as artists, <laughs> and that's that spirit just to give, mm -hmm. uh, gets used in a in a. Uh, anyway, no, absolutely. I, I long for a more innocent world. <laughs> I yeah. No, I, and like that, that really keys in uh, with my own writing praxis in terms of like really fully believing that like art is not therapy. Art can have therapeutic benefits, right? But therapy is therapy because if you internalize that art is therapy, first of all, it it creates this great imbalance in your relate in my relationship at least to whatever i'm working on because as soon as i get an edit or a critique it's like this deep wound right and mm. also you know it's it's not like artists are living lush lives in general all of these places and all these institutions right their their reasoning sometimes is like oh well you already like doing this right like it's good for you because yeah. art is therapy so we're basically giving you health care. We don't have to, you know, give you a stipend or anything, right? 
but that is that is so sweet that reminds me of a few years ago i was in paris i was at place de vosges um and it was my last day there for that trip and i was feeling very sad for myself and i'd brought my watercolor set and these two precious tiny girls came over because they saw that i had paints uh, and they wanted to borrow them, and they painted me these beautiful rainbow pictures with my name very carefully spelled out atop each of them, right? Because I have a funny long name. Huh. And I, I still have those pictures. They're hanging on the wall in my bedroom. And it's just so, it's such a treasure. I wanted to bring up that story is because I, I think, well, so your story of you, I mean, you essentially launched yourself out the window on YouTube, right? when you were quite small. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Through the screen. Yeah. And I think that accessibility of self-publishing tools to even, you know, children, much less teenagers, mm -hmm. um, is a very, very different capability that exists in the world than like maybe when Jeff and I were that age. And I'd be curious to hear your, what was your experience of throwing yourself onto the stage or the screen or the world in that way and what, how you feel it, it, it's impacted your, your art? Oh gosh. Uh, I, I've been thinking about my development alongside the internet really intensely, uh, for a while now. And these kinds of hypotheticals aren't useful, right? Because you can't go back and change anything. Uh, but if I could. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing because I know you have no memory of the way it was. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, that's that's kind of the point, though, right? Is that I, as, as you know, this generation, I grew up in a world where the impetus and tools for self-documentation were never not available, right? I have pictures that I've taken of myself going back to when I was like 10, and that would have been completely unthinkable, uh, you know, five years before I was born, let alone, you know, in in the 1800s when photography was, was first becoming an invention. Um, and I... I don't think that level of self-publishing and self-documentation is healthy for a developing mind. <laughs> Just speaking from my own experience and the conversations that I've had with uh, my, my friends who grew up in a similar way. So if I could go back in time, right, I would not start making uh, YouTube videos or even have a cell phone until I was 16 uh, at you know, the earliest because I started making YouTube videos when I was 12, which is technically against YouTube's regulations. You need to be 13 to have an account. So I, I lied about my age. Um, but I, I was enticed by the internet because I didn't have a s friends in real life. Like just, just to be perfectly blunt. Um, I didn't have that kind of social structure and support system. So when I saw all of these cool people, you know, making videos on YouTube, my impulse wasn't necessarily like, oh, I'm going to make videos and I'm going to be a great artist, right? It was like, oh man, I really want these people to be friends with me because they seem nice, right? Um, so, so that kind of 
imbalance that that kind of with like moving from a place of scarcity almost as opposed uh from from like an energizing impulse from a place of plentitude um i i wish i wish it'd been different <laughs> well back in the day you just stayed alone <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> it didn't magically like, if you didn't have friends it didn't magically push you into creating uh, friends <laughs> just walking around at night all by yourself yourself <laughs> yeah so uh, so i can see both sides of the I guess maybe the nostalgia, what you're yearning for, or 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 the protection that that you would put in place. Yeah, yeah, of course, because loneliness uh, and and you know bullies have existed in every decade, uh, right? I just I I don't know that the internet is the best way to combat and nurture little lonely kids. <laughs> like I want I want more YMCA's and community theater groups. How do you think you would have found your way into what you're doing now without sort of being so cognizant of an audience right from the get-go? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, part part of the health issue, uh, what's that? Part of the issue of the availability of self-documentation, right, is that as a teenager, I didn't see myself as a person occupying the world, right? I saw myself as like, you know, a series of moving images or an object that could be photographed correctly from very certain angles so that I, I looked cute, right? Um, and that was how I, I understood myself. And, you know, obviously, like the male gaze and objectification um, has, have existed longer than the internet. Um, but I really think that all of these tools and again, like the, the impetus and the social conditioning towards self-documentation, uh, they, they don't really help in that regard. Right. Um, again, I was always writing, I was always writing poetry. Um, I remember writing little poems and stanzas and putting them together as early as nine or 10. So that it was already I already considered myself a, a great poet by the time I started producing YouTube videos, and it became a place for me to think about poems and the moving image together. And and this is my favorite part of YouTube. Really, is all of the poetry videos that exist on it. Because I, I paint and I sketch a little bit too for a while, um, I, I thought of myself as, as like a, a poet painter, right? Like someone who uses these arts in conjunction to, to make them both a bit sharper, right? But really like my impulse towards poetry is so entwined with video and film and the moving image. Um, you know, sometimes I'll think of a poem and the only way that I can visualize it is like through a, a scene and a situation and some kind of set. So YouTube gave me the space to put these ideals in motion. So that makes me wonder, Jeff, as also as a poet and painter, how the two interact for you? <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think I am envious of a kind of freedom that you have as I purposefully or not kind of boxed myself in with the painter poet thing 
I gave mm. myself too many rules. Mm. And certainly, I've never found anything that was operating in the world uh, that matched that uh, in the way that you described YouTube sort of matching your sensibility. So it becomes a kind of perfect medium, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I I don't want to be platonic about it. Um, Yeah, uh, yeah, I I just want to say that um, the content and the form match so perfectly. Mm. Or where for me, there's always a tension. Um, It's a long answer to... uh, yeah, well, a question I, I think also, about a lot. Yeah, and also what, what occurred to me as both of you were talking is almost what I hear Rhiannon describing with the YouTube is it's it's a place where the visual and the verbal and the audience triangulate in a single instant, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a really powerful, yeah, the, 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 there's a really powerful layering there that maybe in an older, more linear box of form and content and audience. Very separate. Uh, very, yeah, very separate. Yeah. And, and ne- I, yeah. Necessary, but, but so separate. Um, I mean, yeah, <laughs> there was an old way. There was an old way. <laughs> I, this is what I'm wondering, whether I'm about to start teaching a class in abstract painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a couple of weeks. And I am debating whether or not how much I talk about the old way and how much I try and uh, contrast the old way with the new way in order to clarify the new way to myself, because that's the only person who would find any use from that kind of a clarification. Or do I just let my students sort of go without me trying to drag them into my old perspective. I I can't, I know that there's some wisdom in there for you, but I'm not sure how you might see what. Yeah. What what does your generation need from our generation? (laughs) Well, I, uh, I think some help with climate change would probably be the most pressing. Um. (laughs) (laughs) That's like the, the least, I am least capable of delivering that. <laughs> oh gosh, um, but but Jeff, what you're saying about the the old ways of painting and the newer abstract forms, um, tradition always begets innovation, right? Uh, before you know, all those wacky modernists uh, went off and created their own styles of painting, right? They they had to master the classical forms, um, and. You know, I feel it's the same way for for writing poetry in some sense. Like I, I wrote a lot of sonnets in a really strict traditional form before I started getting weird with them. So you you need to understand the rules to a certain extent, uh, so you know the most efficient ways to break them. Yes, and I suppose I guess what I'm saying is that I want to talk about my way of breaking those rules mm. r- rather than allowing for a new way of breaking them or a new understanding or a new interpretation of them. So I'm not sure how much wisdom there is in in my particular time and place that relates 
both to that history that you're talking about that's so valuable mm-hmm. and to this emergent 21st century view of the world that's so different. Yeah. It's a nuance, it's subtle what I'm, what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Yes, because you mentioned it, uh, that idea of the, that this is the historical, not in terms of the, can, the canon, the historicized canon, but I took your meaning to be the, the sort of like ancient historical, the human historical, and how that relates to in the body and internal rhythms and things like that. Mm-hmm. I'm losing the shape of my point completely. <laughs> Anne Carson, the poet, started out as <laughs> a painter, but she started paying too much attention to the titles of her paintings, and they just kept getting longer and longer. Uh, and and now she's a writer. Yeah, Anne Carson. Mm-hmm. Canadian, I believe. Uh, yes, she is. <laughs> so is Michael Andache, by the way, Julie. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> right, this is a long-running joke where <clears throat> I keep encountering things in the world and discovering they're Canadian and going, hey, Jeff, I know this Canadian. <laughs> He's like, stupid American. <laughs> I do believe a guy I went to high school with ended up doing his PhD uh, with Ann Carson as his advisor. Oh, that is so cool. And uh, he was teaching with her for her. Uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. Wow. Uh, Did he have to climb to her office hours in like the topmost cave of a mountain? <laughs> yeah. No. Or was yeah. it more of an under the lake situation? Uh, I think it's probably like an ice cave at the heart of Montreal. Oh, <laughs> ideal. Ideal. I bet it comes with utilities. She got like a great deal on it, you know? Yep. I was just thinking about, because we've asked that question quite a lot to Generation Poetry, younger generations saying, what what do you need from us? And consistently we hear actually this, like talking to each other, like having these conversations, what we're doing right now mm-hmm. is actually really important because kind of the space and the place and the the frame for actually just talking about this world that we're living in together um, and the world that we want to live in together is, is kind of sorely lacking. Mm. And I think particularly when we think about the future that we, that we want to live in together. I remember in one of the poems that, that you read to us last time, you used the metaphor of, I think the, the future unfolding like a tablecloth. Yeah. That, that very much, cause I'm, uh, one of my obsessions is time, like the different ways that we conceptualize time and think about the past, present and the future and, and what time is. And that metaphor caught my, caught my ear. And I wanted to ask you, like, what, what do you imagine the future to be? What does the future mean to you? To be completely honest, uh, I, living in America, I really can't conceptualize the future beyond like the next three months you know at at any given point um between climate change and the pressing political situation and the election and mass shootings right it is honestly very difficult for me to be like oh what's my five-year plan i don't know like learning how to swim through 
mass wreckage like what <laughs> I, I i really it's it's difficult for me to think about what um is coming up which really that fear motivates a lot of my activism in the present tense right it's it's a combination of fear out of what could happen if i i do not do these things if we as a mass movement don't do these things um as well as love so much love for the things and people and spaces that uh exist right now and love for any potential future realities that i don't have the the power to even fully visualize yet right um rebecca solnit defines hope as action right it's not optimism because optimism is just wishful thinking and pessimism is just imagining the worst case scenarios and there's uh there's no movement in either of these but hope she says is the axe that you grab to to cut down the door that lets you escape right hope is is looking for the escape patterns and knowing where you want to escape to so that's uh and, and i mean that that brings me to like like something that ursula k Le Guin, a wonderful science fiction writer argues a lot um you know she says that people call science fiction escapism but when you're escaping something you're always escaping towards freedom so maybe we we do need more escapism uh all of which to say is that like in a practical sense it's very difficult for me to imagine the future but when i am able oh my puppy is scratching at the door um but it is it's very difficult for me to imagine the future in a practical sense but when i do let myself hope uh in in a, a stretch of time longer than three months uh i i see a lot of community gardens and there are thousands and thousands of ways that we need to heal the world and i want that to be my work forever <laughs> so i i think what i heard in there is to to have a conversation about the future first we have the conversation that ensures we have one yeah yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I heard that we have to do more than just have a conversation about the future. We have to act towards it. Yes, that too. Hmm. Okay, well, <laughs> I, I'm not going to get a plastic bag when I go to the grocery store today. Well, that's the thing is that for a while, um, you know, the mainstream environmental movement has been very focused on individual actions. Right. And I'm not going to deny that those are important, but what we need is mass institutional structural change because, you know, it, it doesn't make the largest difference if I, as an individual, stop eating meat. Right. It's more if everyone in America cuts down on meat consumption and also the oil companies stop pouring shit into the ocean you know <laughs> like i we mm, <laughs> try not to go spilling off go for but... it <laughs> go for oh, it well, not yet not yet <laughs> <laughs> what was the name of the poem that you posted on instagram 
yesterday. A foreign correspondent. Foreign correspondent. That's also, yeah, that's also in this book. I'm so uh, happy with that video. I'm glad that you guys liked it. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of got a... It's got a quality to it. <laughs> it's like, the, I want to say it's like this lo-fi kind of thing. Um, do you know what lo-fi is? Yeah, lo-fi <laughs> is a really great word. And I'm glad that uh, came across with this piece in particular, because what uh, I was thinking about as I was collecting um but it, okay so let me let me clarify first so the video that we're talking about is the video that I made for my poem foreign correspondent uh which was published in my first book branches and the video consists of uh, about 60 clips each word gets one clip as I'm shouting it from various streets and locales of Paris and it's all cut together and it took me a while <laughs> like I've, I've been sitting on this footage for years um you know just between trips slowly picking all the pieces out and Paris is one of the most visited cities in the world it's like this great tourist destination right uh my grandmother's family is from france um this is this is the jewish part uh you'll notice that we live in america now uh because of reasons uh and when i visit france and paris in particular it's very difficult for me to hold these two realities in my head of like oh my gosh like everything about this city and you know, the the advertising of the tourist department, right? And the architecture and the food is screaming at me to think that it is beautiful and romantic and therefore good. However, I also spend a lot of time in the archives and I know my family history and I know that, you know, beauty and terror aren't just two sides of the same coin they're they're usually the same thing uh so with foreign correspondent i i was thinking a lot about this this dichotomy of beauty and terror uh so the way that i i put that out in a filmic sense was thinking about a bad selfie Right? Because walking through Paris is quite similar to walking through Hollywood uh, in some streets where you can barely get down the sidewalk because there's so many people taking pictures of themselves and trying to get the perfect lighting on the bridge, you know, with the full background at, at a, the right angle so everyone can see that they've had a nice holiday. Uh, so while I was there, you'll notice in the video that so many of the angles have construction sites in the background or there is not the most flattering angle of me or the lighting is really exposed and weird, right? So I, I was trying to think of how I can represent the city not necessarily as this place of romance and beauty that you must worship or even as you know this 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 psychological hell right but just what is it in this exact moment that i've pulled my camera out without me trying to fuss with it too much because it's 
spliced and edited together that it's mm -hmm. a bunch of those kind of naked moments. Oh, yeah. No, naked. Naked's the right word for it. I remember I had, this was a long time ago when I was still in art school and I had the most terrible argument with uh, my video art instructor who said that you just turn the camera on and the world is just there in a naked way. That is completely objective, the camera. Mm, no. But of course it's not. <laughs> and I was like, no, no. it's not. <laughs> but there is a sense in which it is. It, it's, it's objective in that moment for whoever's holding the camera. But there, right? but there is a particular, you know, the light's particular time of day. Like it does record all of these things that if you're not manipulating them, give you that exposed feeling mm -hmm. you can create a subjective feeling of objectivity yeah but then the editing what's the opposite of seamless the seamed <laughs> it doesn't make any sense <laughs> the scene <laughs> the scene the visible seams uh, mm -hmm. kind of run counter to the nakedness right because it's so manipulated so kind of doing both things at the same time yeah yeah um also, also thinking a lot about memory and the function of memory through these things. There's the linear poem, right? Like, um, the words are all in order, but the way that I'm moving through the space and carrying certain gestures and actions throughout the words, uh... As well as, you know, some of the footage is from two years ago, some of the footage I shot last month, right? And I look, I look quite visibly different, you know? So, so thinking about memory and time in, in that sense as well. Foreign Correspondent Though there are churches along the paper route, it is my pleasure to report that I have been picked up and spun in front of the cathedral, a few steps off the island, and missed curfew. All the notebooks rang out on assignment for the empire of memory. I was lovely, comma, lovely, for nearly seven hours. I read verses, and none of them were mine. Uh, this is in my first collection, Branches. So my next book will be coming out in June of 2020. I'm, I'm quite excited. Uh, and the title is Grocery List Poems. We'll try to, right? Oh, God. You know, if, if the Democratic Party put half as much effort okay okay i'm gonna stop, I'm gonna stop. <laughs> <laughs> i just i i've been a poll worker in my neighborhood for the last couple of years uh you know even before the 2016 election and i wish that full voting rights were restored in the u.s right i i think the last number i saw between people who have been disenfranchised by the prison system or voter ID laws or just 
not having access to a polling place or not having the time off from work to go and vote is something like 20 million people in the U.S. who were not able to vote in the 2016 election. And that's terrifying. Like, it was the first election without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act, uh, which maybe had an effect, right, a, a bit more than... You know what? Uh, the the disenfranchisement of the suburbs, right? Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, I just I wish that people in this country were allowed to vote because if we were all allowed to vote and they actually counted the votes, we would be living in a different world. <laughs> so that's my. Oh my goodness! I mean, if if you're American and you're listening to this podcast, then go register to be a poll worker, right? Because like. My shifts as a poll worker are only supposed to last four hours. But whenever there's an election, I am there from 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. Because if I leave, people in my neighborhood will not be able to vote because there's no one to take over my shift. Uh, and you know what? It's a great gig, at least in L.A. County. Uh, they, they give you like 150 bucks. It's it's very easy work. You you get to see all of your neighbors and friends come in and participate in the democratic process. And uh if if you don't do it, they won't be able to vote. <laughs> this is this well, is my that's advertisement. A, that's, a very, yeah. that's a very good call to action, yeah. speaking of of action over words. Oh yeah, um, no, every every show that I've done for the last couple of years at the end, I'm like, all right, so buy my book and register to be a poll worker. Thank you. Good night. 